This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... And it is not just a food crisis. It's a water crisis, it's an education crisis, it's a livelihoods crisis, it's a nutrition crisis. That's World Food Program's Regional Director for Eastern Africa, Michael Dunford, on the massive hunger problem in the Horn of Africa. Details coming up also. The U.S. has accused Russia of using mercenaries to exploit Africa's natural resources and commit human rights violations. Lesotho is voting today with few hopes to end unstable coalitions. And former South African President Jacob Zuma has finished his sentence for contempt of court. We have these stories and more ahead on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Talks between Ethiopia's government and rival Tigray regional forces proposed for this weekend in an effort to end their two-year conflict have been delayed. The African Union-led talks to be held in South Africa would be the first formal negotiations between the two sides since war broke out in November 2020. Hussein Kiflu, a political and social commentator, tells VOA's Douglas Mpuga Tigray forces may need some conditions met before the talks begin. I'm not surprised that, uh, that it, it is said to be delayed because in the first place, uh, the peace talk, uh, just like uh, I describe it as phantom uh, peace talk. It, it took uh, even uh, one of the mediators one of the mediators who, uh, who, who is named as a mediator, Uhuru Kenyatta, by surprise, according to my information. Because before uh, African Union issued that letter, that invitation for peace talk, it hasn't even informed uh, the main stakeholders, like uh, the mediators, uh, uh, the former president, Uhuru Kenyatta, uh, and also uh, the Tigran the, the leaders. They demanded clarification. And... Um, from what I've been hearing, uh, there is a lot of concern. One, they have made it clear over and over that uh, they totally disagree with Olisengo uh, Nobasanjo to be, to, to be the, the mediator. And two, they demanded you know, uh, certain uh, preconditions, and which is right, which is logical, uh, for the resumption of basic services, for unfettered access to humanitarian aid and uh, cessation of hostility. All this uh, haven't been uh, uh, responded to by, by the Abiy Ahmed and company. So uh, against uh, the backdrop of all this, now AU uh, issued this uh, invitation uh, to peace talk in South Africa. So that's what made it uh, you know, dubious uh, from the very beginning. And so it's no surprise that, that uh, it has been delayed for an indefinite period of time, once again. Uh, do you think uh, at some future point when these issues are resolved, these talks may be, indeed be held because um, the situation on the ground hasn't changed much? This conflict, this, I mean, um, I hate to describe it as conflict because it's an understatement. This atrocious war at some point will have to come uh, to a negotiating table because uh, that's the law of nature. But for that to happen, there should be genuine desire to bring peace 
uh, into that region. I don't see that that's happening. So that's why uh, I, I described it. Uh, I described it earlier as phantom talk. But otherwise, uh, yes, uh, ultimately it it would come to some form of uh, uh, peace talk, some form of negotiating table. But to to bring genuine peace, uh, we need to see bona fide, you know, uh, this good phase uh, from uh, especially, particularly from the Ethiopian. Uh, government from Abiy Ahmed and company. While the, you know the used African Union, uh, which we know uh, its track record uh, not to be exemplary, while you're they're using African Union for this sort of phantom peace talk, they still continue to carpet bomb. You know, to this indiscriminately bombing and killing civilians in Tigray. Uh, so that's what makes it. You know. Uh, it's a dead on arrival. That was Hussein Kiflu, a political and social commentator, speaking with Douglas Mpuga from Dallas, Texas. To further understand the reasons behind the postponed weekend negotiations between Tigray forces and the Ethiopian government, I talked to Brookings Institute non-resident fellow Professor John Mukum Mbaku. My first question, why the postponement? The official announcement, I mean, the official announcement from the uh, African Union is that the talks were postponed for logistical reasons. That's what they say, that uh, they were postponing the talks because they had not yet been able to resolve some logistical issues associated with uh, uh, holding the talks. Now, what that means is not really clear because that could be some kind of euphemism for the fact that the two parties may not be in agreement on what the structure of the talk is going to be. Remember that uh, the government in Tigray had already complained that the invitation letter was sent out without consulting them, and that in, in as much as they were interested in the talk, they were not going to accept any imposition of a format for the talks by the African Union and that they would accept the results of the talks, the outcomes of the talks, only on condition that they consider the process to be fair and impartial. So it is possible, uh, we really don't know, but it is possible that uh, one or both sides were not happy with the structure of the uh, process and were making an effort to have it changed. What do both sides want from this negotiation if it ever uh, happens? Is there a genuine desire for peace from both sides? I think that uh, given the the extent of uh, devastation in uh, Tigray, in fact, according to credible reports, more than 5 million people in Tigray are now without services, uh, especially things like food, med- uh, medical services, electricity is not there, phone service has broken down, the internet is not working, banking and financial services are not working, many children are not going to school. In fact, uh, I believe that the education system in Tigray has not been functioning for the last uh, two years, since November 2020. And so I think that uh, from the point of view of Tigray, they would want uh, a ceasefire that would allow them to begin to reconstruct their country. They would also want the withdrawal of all troops. Uh, in fact, the Tigray government has uh, indicated that as part of the talks, it wants all foreign troops to be withdrawn from the state of Tigray. 
Now, what they, they didn't explain what they meant by foreign troops, whether that means Eritrean uh, troops, Ethiopian federal troops, or both. We really don't know. But they want that done. They want a ceasefire so that the, the, the state can begin the process of reconstruction. Uh, Professor, the deepening conflict also has raised international alarm with the United States this week, for example, announcing that its special envoy to the region, Mike Hammer, would be making his second visit to Ethiopia in as many months to seek a halt to the fighting. So the international participation, would that help in the negotiations? Well, the the international uh, participation always helps. The problem is that when you bring in external uh, parties, you always have to be very careful because external parties come in with their own interests. If you remember what happened uh, during the previous U.S. administration with respect to the GERD, where uh, Mr. Trump, then president of the U.S., came into the negotiations over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and basically took the side of Egypt and even effectively derailed the negotiations. So one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that, yes, uh, international assistance is always very important. After all, when the ceasefire is achieved, reconstruction or in a uh, uh, Tigray will require a lot of uh, financial assistance and countries such as the U.S. and uh, economic organizations such as the EU will become very important in providing assistance that can be used for that uh, reconstruction. So those groups are important. But what we have to keep in mind as Africans is that external groups always come into these kinds of arrangements with their own objective. That was Professor John Mokum Mbaku, non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute. He talked with me from the U.S. state of Utah. Saifu Tadessa, Jamal Osman, an identified person, and Bayisa Sarbessa were some of the people we talked to in the streets of Addis Ababa about the planned and now postponed peace talks. PhD. I'm a resident of Dredoa. Uh, the uh, federal government is uh, defending our country very well in the northern part. Uh, I also believe peace is very important. So uh, peace cannot come through war only. And uh, negotiation is very important, I believe. So the, what the, the responsibility African Union take currently, uh, I do appreciate that. Uh, I know the federal government is ready for peace negotiation, but on the TPLF side, cannot trust them because they changed their stance now in the Zen as per the, their condition on the battleground. They are failing to defend themselves or their offensive acts didn't come uh, as their plan. Therefore, they might retreat from the negotiation after they buy time, so the government should be cautious of that. And its point has to be also how to remove the junta leaders from the Tigray region and uh, let the Tigray people get freedom. Jamal Usman, I am a lawyer and attorney at any federal and regional courts. At the beginning, the, the Tigrayan forces were refused to accept the peaceful uh, dispute resolution method, but now they, they force it because yeah, now they're, they totally they lose their by bargaining power. Totally, uh, they were ambushed in the battlefields. For that matter, now they have no chance to survive. Only means to survive, they have to accept uh, the peace, uh, the, you know, the peace deal between, the peace deal which is proposed by the African Union. Uh, what else comes to expect from this mediation? Generally, I think the peaceful uh, dispute resolution uh, 
includes the demilitarization of the TPLA forces. Because uh, as far as they are in one country, we have only one defense force. They may be uh, regional uh, security forces, police forces. To that amount, nowadays the TPL, the, the Tigray forces uh, armed uh, beyond that level. So that if they accept the peace deal, they have to respect the, the constitution and they have to disarm. The two groups, uh, the state and the uh, Hohat, it is uh, good to argue, to make agreement for the whole Africa and the whole Ethiopian. Ethiopian people and uh, Tigray people are brothers and sisters, so they, they, never, uh, they never fight again. They, they have no interest. The two people have no interest to fight each other, so uh, the agreement is, will be uh, good for the people. I'm very happy to hear about this situation because we need badly, we need peace. Both community, the whole community of Ethiopia needs peace. I hope the discussion will end with positive result. I want to ask both sides to make our country, the whole country, peaceful country. Let them pay, let them be ready to pay all sacrifices in order to uh, make our country peaceful, peaceful country. That is my message, because we are always, every day, every second, we are losing people. To stop that kind of hardship, they need to pay what sacrification it requires. The East African bloc, IGAD, aid groups and development partners have called for greater coordination to fight growing hunger in the region. IGAD member ministers say aid has been stepped up but is not enough to keep up with the region's rising food, water and medical needs. Mohammed Yasuf reports from Nairobi. An estimated 51 million people across East Africa are in dire need of food, water and medicine. Ministers from the eight nations of IGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, met in Nairobi this week to find ways to deal with a general humanitarian crisis in the region. The World Forum's Regional Director for Eastern Africa, Michael Danford, said urgent action is needed. As indicated, we are in a crisis, and it is not just a food crisis. It's a water crisis, it's an education crisis, it's a livelihoods crisis, it's a nutrition crisis. And over the course of the last couple of days, we've had many words spoken. But now we need to turn these words into action, and actions where we are joined up and able to respond to the needs of the population across the Horn of Africa. The WFP says its annual needs for the region have climbed from $4.3 billion to $6 billion dollars. And despite getting some donations, it has yet to close the gap. Persistent drought made worse by four consecutive failed rainy seasons has wiped out crops and livestock in the region, destroying the livelihoods of millions in the Horn of Africa. Mohamed Malik is the regional director for Eastern and Southern Africa for the United Nations Children's Agency or UNICEF. He says the region is losing its younger generations due to a lack of food and water. Malnutrition figures are skyrocketing. We know as we speak today, there are 1.7 million children who are facing severe and acute malnutrition, which is the extreme form of malnutrition and a major cause to death. As we speak today, children are having problems of accessing water. 
UNICEF says at least 3.7 million students in the region may have dropped out of school and most of them may not return to class. Somalia is one of the countries most affected by the drought, with more than 7 million people who are food insecure. The country's Minister for Agriculture and Irrigation, Ahmed Madobe Nuno, says conflict and lack of government presence in many parts of Somalia have made it difficult for people to feed themselves. Land access and land utilization is a challenge in Somalia because most of the fertile land is not in the hands of the government and therefore land access is uh, an additional problem in Somalia. In neighboring Ethiopia and Kenya, at least 23 million people are food insecure and in Ethiopia, Conflict in the Tigray region has worsened the humanitarian situation. According to the aid agencies, 6 million South Sudanese are food insecure and 30% of Sudan's population is facing a food crisis compounded by climate change, political instability and increased food prices. Sudan's Minister for Agriculture and Forest, Abu Bakar Omer El-Bushra, said the population in constant conflict and violence cannot produce sufficient food. In stable communities who are, who are affected by tribal or political crises turn into either refugees or displaced. People in camps lose their livelihood. They are changed from producers to consumers. And here food crisis strike. Government representatives and aid agencies are calling for coordinated regional interventions, strengthening of research capabilities and early warning systems to prevent disaster related to food and nutrition crisis before they happen. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Former South African President Jacob Zuma has walked out of prison after finishing his sentence for contempt of court. Reuters notes that he received a 15-month sentence last year for ignoring instructions to participate in a corruption investigation. He turned himself on July 7th last year but was released on medical parole two months later. A high court overturned the decision in December and he returned to jail. He appealed the ruling and remained on parole pending his appeal. This week his sentence expired and he has been set free. Reuters says he thanked the messages of support on social media that, in his words, kept me strong and focused on ensuring that those who wanted to break my spirit and resolve did not succeed. U.S. Senator Chris Coons and Congressman David Price claim Tunisia cannot have economic stability without reviving democracy. They said in an article in Foreign Policy magazine that President Kais Saeed's focus on centralizing power is alienating foreign donors and pushing Tunisia towards an economic collapse. 
Congress has endorsed President Joe Biden's proposal to slash U.S. economic and security assistance to Tunisia's unless there are dramatic changes to the North African country's democratic institutions. VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi discussed these developments with Sarah Yerkes, senior fellow in Carnegie's Middle East program. I agree with the point that the senators make. I think what we've seen is that President Saeed is not actually addressing the challenges that are facing Tunisia, primarily the economic constraints. And from the beginning, he has really just focused his efforts on rewriting the constitution, on changing the political system, which was never a major demand of the Tunisian people. And while he claims to be speaking on behalf of the people, he doesn't actually consult them and really just jammed through his own vision for Tunisia's future, which doesn't speak to the massive systemic economic and social challenges that Tunisia has been facing for decades. President Biden has proposed slashing U.S. economic and security assistance to the Tunisian government, and Congress has endorsed these cuts unless there are dramatic changes to Tunisian democratic institutions. Would that convince President Saeed to change course? I don't think the cuts and assistance are enough to push Saeed to change course, but I do think it's potential that they could help prevent him from taking even further steps, such as fully outlawing political parties or declaring himself president for life. I think the continued attention and the the discussion of aid cuts does sort of put some guardrails up for him. But more than that, you know, I, I do think that these sorts of cuts and this discussion around the cuts is an important symbolic step in that it does show actors in Tunisia who are still committed to democracy that the United States supports them and it keeps pressure on him. I think, you know, once the United States turns its eye away from Saeed, that's when the situation could become even more dangerous. And it shows him that the United States is not just willing to return to business as usual. Tunisia's currency is in a free fall. Food and fuel prices are surging and youth unemployment is over 30%. Tunisians are protesting the increasing poverty and the lack of food commodities in stores. What could that lead to? I think that we're likely to see continued protests and continued anger over the economy and particularly over the fact that stores are really having trouble filling their shelves. So far, Saeed has largely been able to kind of diffuse the pressure away from itself. It hasn't really come back on him directly yet. But, you know, each day he's sort of losing more and more support. And the longer he fails to deliver on the economy, the more likely people are to blame him. I mean, he is the government. He controls all the different uh, vehicles within the government. And so, you know, there's not really anyone else for him to blame at this point. And I think what we're looking at is that Tunisia could really be heading for a clash. And the question is how Saeed responds to it. And if there are, you know, more violent protests or if he uses violence against protesters, what happens? And and more importantly, what he can, what he's willing to do to meet the protesters' demands and pull Tunisia out of this freefall. Would the IMF loan help the president to sustain his power? The IMF, I think, would be a symbolic and important financial band-aid. But the IMF is not going to put food on the shelves. It's not going to put people in jobs. Um, The IMF is more of a long-term program, and Tunisia is going to have to face some painful austerity in the short term in order to meet the conditions of the IMF goal. I do think it could both help and hurt Saeed at the same time. A lot of his supporters are very much against the kind of conditionality the IMF is asking for. So while signing it could unlock a lot of foreign assistance, it could help Tunisia address some of these economic issues. At the same time, once he actually signs this deal, he could draw in the ire of some people who don't think that Tunisia should be beholden to the IMF. So it's really a double-edged sword for him. 
That was Sarah Yerkes, Senior Fellow in Carnegie's Middle East Program, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed Al-Shinawi. The United States has accused Russia of using mercenaries to exploit Africa's natural resources and commit human rights violations. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield says yesterday the Kremlin is using the Wagner Group and that, in her words, these ill-gotten gains are used to fund Moscow's war machine in Africa, the Middle East, and Ukraine. Make no mistake, she said, people across Africa are paying a heavy price. Reuters notes that the Wagner Group is made up of Russian military veterans who are involved in several countries including Mali, the Central African Republic, Libya and Syria. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Cedric Franklin, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.